And now, enjoy this free Jason Modcast show. Not what we know, because we don't know shit. What we think. <laughs> <laughs> David came on Toya as Sadie Burbank Podcast. Or as Sadie Burbank, David came on Toya Podcast. <laughs> the game plan, yeah. The, uh, the show. Don't make it up. Let's actually make some... <laughs> And see, I came up with more. Not what we know, because we don't know shit. It's Thursday night, so let's find out what the fuck we think on David Came on Plan. Alright, kids, as you can probably clearly hear from my voice, um, I got a nasty case of bronchitis. And when I'm sick, or anyone in my family's sick, Sadie stays away like, uh, I don't know. If I were a $20 hooker with an STD, no, not that I would know anything about it, you know, hooker with STDs or anything. Anyway, um, so this is the game plan while my voice holds up. The game plan is uh, we were talking, and she wanted to, to do something, you know, for the listeners, maybe another uh, collection. And I was like, well, for episode 52, we already did a full collection. Um, so I decided what we're going to do is we're going to dive all the way back to the beginning. The very first podcast, not only for Sadie and I, but our very, my very first podcast as well. See, I have died at the minute 40, 14 second mark. Okay. Um, so what we did is we're going to dive back and pull up a very first show before there was what we think Sadie and I did when in Burbank. So let's go ahead and jump back and enjoy what I'm calling a throwback Thursday of Sadie and I's very, very first podcast called When in Burbank, number one. Welcome to When in Burbank. I'm Dave Montoya. And I'm Miss Sadie Burbank. Tonight I want to talk about Sadie's first novel. A non-fiction tale about her experience in 1971 while living in Liberia. The book, Red Hills, Green Vines, and Dried Monkey Meat for Dinner, was released last year in 2011 by Luna Press. Sadie, welcome. Thank you. Can you tell us a little something about your book? Oh, Lord. <laughs> a little something about my book. It took a long time to write. How long did it take? About a year and a half. Almost two years, actually, from start to finish. And how many pages total? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> 200 and something? I don't know, wait a minute. Uh, counting the end pictures, 261 or two. 262. So in a year and a half, you wrote 262 pages. How long? Wrote and rewrote and rewrote and rewrote. Yeah. That's what I was going to ask is the first draft. How long was it to write the first draft? I didn't actually write a first draft of the whole book. Uh, I, what I did was I just sat down and started telling the story as it happened to me. And, and each uh, chapter, if you will, uh, covered a period of time from the time I left Los Angeles and several situations there um, in San Diego area until I got to Liberia. So each each chapter got rewritten and rewritten and rewritten until it correctly felt, oh, that's not the right word, until I could make it feel the way it felt then. So the readers could identify with you. 
exactly yeah and so I but because I I couldn't have just sat down and written the whole thing um, actually relived the whole experience while I was writing and it was sometimes painful sometimes time-consuming to express some of the feelings that I had then and to and to remember what went on this is a long time back uh, and if it hadn't have been for the fact that my mother had saved a couple of the letters that I mailed to her from Liberia when I was there uh, there wouldn't have been as many details in, in the book as there are but a lot of the details that are in the book I took from those letters because it was stuff I'd forgotten you know like I, re- I wrote her this whole letter one time about how much everything cost there because at the time it was interesting to sh- both of us she was interested and I was interested of course these days those prices would seem quite reasonable but in those days they were not in all the food for example in Liberia that we bought in the stores everything was imported the the country at the time did not have a national product per se uh, they didn't have anything that, that you could buy there that was grown there. I mean, they did have, but very, very little. You couldn't get any lettuce, for example. Nobody had lettuce. Restaurants had lettuce. I don't know where they got it, but they had lettuce. But you could, I couldn't go out and buy lettuce. Couldn't buy bacon. Had to buy bacon in a can. You know, stuff like that. Mother found that interesting, and I knew she would. So I would write to her letters about it, and she saved them. So when I started trying to include those kinds of details in the story, I referred to uh, the letters, and it really helped me a lot, because I, I didn't realize how much I'd forgotten over the years. Well, that, and also, I, I've seen the picture for myself. How much did the picture play bring back? A lot, a lot. Um, some of those pictures, when I sit there, and, and I when I sit and look at those pictures, I feel like I'm there where I was when I took those pictures. And it it, um, it it put me back there, which, like I said, sometimes that was painful. Sometimes it was not. Sometimes Because there were a lot of times when I had a really great time there. I loved the Liberian people, and I loved meeting the Liberian people and sharing time with them. And those memories were brought back by the pictures. How long? Oh, let's see, July to October, went back home for my son's birthday, came back, and then finally left in December. Okay, out of 33 chapters, yes, I went to the book. Good, because I wouldn't remember either. So out of 33 chapters, is there one specific chapter that really stands out, that really, for lack of a better term, your favorite chapter? Oh, and ask me something like that. Basically, what you're asking me is, was there a time that I was there that was my favorite time? And yeah, there was. Um, Joseph, the local who lived there in our encampment in the bush with us, and he was there to sort of keep us from killing ourselves, basically. He had several wives, two actually. He had one who was named Mimi, who lived there in the camp with him and us. And he had another one, I don't know what her name was. I don't think I ever really knew. 
uh, she lived in another village. Their relationship was not as close. Um, he had two sons, Bokai and, oh crap, what was his other son's name? I can't remember now. Well, anyhow, it doesn't matter. Uh, and the time that we spent with them, um, we had a tape recorder. We had an old reel-to-reel tape recorder. I think they're called Kai. I think that's the brand. Uh, it was a great big thing. Huge. Uh, we got Joseph and Mimi in our hut with us and recorded a message to send to my parents as a Christmas gift. And Joseph sang songs in his native tongue, which is Vi, is the language, V-I, I think it's spelled. Um, and then he spoke he spoke English fairly well, actually, much better than I spoke Vi. And he um, told my parents that he was so grateful that I had come because Steve and I represented potential work for people in that area um, because of the work we were doing. Uh, Jobs were going to be available and so we were held in high regard because of that. And so Joseph was so grateful that that we had come and he was also grateful because we had become friends and he appreciated that friendship. And that evening that we spent with he and Mimi and the two kids uh, singing and and just talking into the tape recorder for my parents to hear was so much fun. And, so, and it was so sweet because we played it back for him to hear. And I, I wish there was some way for people to see the look I remember on his face. I mean, it all sat down. <laughs> when that happened, he was so tickled to hear his voice and to hear his singing and to hear the words he had said of thanks to my parents and to God for me being there and for Steve. That was probably my favorite time. And that's touched on quite a bit in the book. Now, with the recording, do we have a copy of the recording? No, unfortunately, my rapid departure under, as you know, stressful circumstances um, precluded me actually even getting that recording to my parents and unfortunately it's lost to us but it will forever remain in my heart I'm glad you brought up the ending because other than the, the fire ants <laughs> which I absolutely I remember I was I was probably somewhere at 5 o'clock in the morning I don't remember exactly where I was at I remember you had emailed me a copy of that and I was reading it and I was just like really into it Actually, uh, let me correct you. They're not fire ants. They're driver ants. Driver. Yeah, and they're horrendous, horrendous little animals. They're really, they're scary little beasts. Is what they are. <laughs> anyway, um, that is one of the most uh, riveting chapters for me that I enjoyed. I remember mm-hmm. enjoying, um, but the, the conclusion. And I remember when I was reading the conclusion that I, I asked myself. This can't be real because this sounds like something straight out of a Hollywood movie. And I, I read it a couple times, and the ending um, just. If you haven't read the book yet, folks, you need to buy the book. You can buy it at MythMart, www.mythworks.com. Um, it's, it's, it's a great book. 
And it, the you. thing that makes it even better is the fact that it really happened. This isn't bullshit, people. This is really what went down back in 1971. Um, but the ending, to me, was just so exciting. I, I could see, you know, big screen, Hollywood, multi-million dollar budget, you know, <laughs> making that, that run from Robert's film, you know, or to Robert's film, rather, um, to, to get to the airport to get back to the United States. It was just... I'm telling you folks, you're really going to enjoy this book. Um, one of the things that I also wanted to talk about is what led you to decide to write the book? Uh, you did, <laughs> actually. Um, what was I writing? I was writing, uh, oh, I was writing Convict. I was working on Convict, which is my graphic novel, I guess we're calling that. I'm not sure what we're calling that right now. Um, and I was well into that, well into that, dang near had it done, <clears throat> and I don't remember how you found out about Liberia. Did I tell you? I can't remember how that came about that you knew about it, but the minute you heard about it, you made me stop everything and, and write it. You just, just said, convict can wait, do this now. Um, from what I can remember... I believe you told the story to Mario. Oh, yeah. Mario came to me, and to, to tell the listeners, Mario was my president uh, of the company for quite a few years. We were very close. He was like my right-hand man. Um, and Sadie had told him this, verbally the story uh, of the Red Hills, and then he came to me, and he told me about it, and I went straight to Sadie, and I'm like, forget what you're doing. You're going to write this book now. Yep, that's what you did. <laughs> and that's what I did. I stopped everything. I, I shelved Convict, which I really didn't want to do because I found I had never written anything like a graphic novel before. And in doing so, I I found a new love. I, I just fell in love with the, the genre of, of that writing uh, technique. And I was real happy doing it. And I didn't really necessarily want to stop. And start a non-fiction novel, but um, it was also a story that I have told other people in the past. One of them is mentioned in the, um, what do you call that part where they say thanks to people? Um, Tina Lucas, who worked with us, uh, had heard the story several times because, you know, when you're not doing anything in the middle of the night in the hospital, you got nothing else to do, so you start talking about old times. And, right. And I would tell her different things. And she, every time I'd tell her uh, something about what went on in Liberia, she'd say, you ought to write a book about that. You ought to write a book about that. You know? And I go, yeah, right. Um, so between her having said so and then your saying so, well, you presented to me a more professional opinion than God love her, Tina did. And uh, so I guess between the two of you, I, I decided, okay, maybe I should write that. Maybe it is a good story. Well, I remember at one point, I whether it come hell or high water, I was publishing. Uh, yeah, you did say that because <laughs> there was a lot of hell and high water in there too. Because there were times when I I would call you up and I'd say, "Have you read this yet? Is it does it sound right? Is that is that what you're looking for? Is it doesn't it, it does it sounds stupid to me? Does it sound stupid to you?" Um, I felt very insecure about telling the story in terms of whether or not anybody else would care about. The story 
one thing that I've learned as a publisher is when it comes to true life stories, whether it be mundane or exciting, all you have to do is slap a non-fiction title on there, and you've got I hope so. <laughs> uh, but when it comes into exciting storytelling, um, again, going more into the book, um, Sadie brings the reader into the book. She, she's narrating the book from beginning to end. Um, and, and let me back up a little bit here. Let's talk about the very beginning of the book because you did something that was not normal as far as book you know, publishing. Um, I own a magazine, an online magazine, The World of Myth. Um, and I, I came to Sadie, oh, it's been over a year ago, and I, I told her, you know, this is what we're doing, and I'd like you to do a pre-story. Kind of what leads into the Red Hills book. And she put out, before the, head, before the Red Hills, part one and part two, and we originally put it out on The World of Myth. Um, and instead of doing an introduction, which is the norm in publishing, um, Sadie came to me and she told me, hey, let's just put, before the Red Hills, part one and two, let's put it in the spot of the introduction. I was like, that's genius. Um, so not only do you get a, a, a traditional story in the deep of the novel, but you actually get a little extra bonus where the introduction should be because you're getting a whole lead up to it. Um, do you remember, did, did we go back and forth about doing an introduction or was it just something that kind of... Well, you said you wanted me to do one and, and I didn't have an objection to doing one, but it, you know me, I'm pretty wordy. And so by the time I got done, I had like two freaking chapters of introduction. It didn't seem smart to have that. And, and, and then I'd said everything in that, so I didn't have anything left to put in an introduction. And so it just seemed like the natural place to put that information. Um, it, it's, it fits. And at first, to be honest with you, I, I wasn't really sure you know, how that would work. Most people would open up, they're like, okay, where's the introduction? So the introduction to the story. But it's just kind of like it, what you sets the tone not in depth um, as to the rest of the novel but it gets you ready it's, it's kind of like, uh, like I get something which was um, when you were writing what made you decide to go first person versus third person was there anything or was it something that you were like okay I know that I need to narrate this I couldn't do third person because it was too much me. The, the, what I was telling people in, in, the, in the story was right out of my gut, and I couldn't do that in third person. So, doing it in third person, it includes the emotion as the point you did in first person. Well, it took me out of it. Um, I, I don't know, it's kind of hard for me to explain, but when I write, when I was writing this, anyhow, um, I'm there. Um, reliving everything that happened if I were to tell it in third person it would take me back out of it again right. and and I, I, I couldn't do that I had to be there 
to, because I could remember, as I was writing, I could remember the smells and the, and the, the, the sounds and the, the feel of the, of the country. Uh, I don't know if you've ever been to a foreign country or not, but I hadn't been. I mean, yeah, I'd been to TJ, but that doesn't count, right. okay? <laughs> uh, for those of you that don't know TJ, that's Tijuana, and Mexico is not that far away. And don't drink the water, folks. Right. <laughs> and I've been to Canada. That doesn't count either. That's not, to me, foreign. Eh? Pardon? <laughs> yeah, right. But I'd never, I had never been out of the country. When I, and I talk about this in the book, when I, when, when, when I came to the door of the airplane and that incredible heat and humidity slapped me in the face, it was like, holy shit, I'm in another world. <laughs> it, so what are we talking heat-wise? Oh, Africa hot. Totally. I mean, then I, I, you know, I steal so, that from. So we're talking that. Oh, oh you. Well, no, no, no. It was an airport. I mean, you know, it wasn't like you know, the Maasai tribes weren't out dancing and shit. But you no, know, it was. Uh, it was just hotter than blazes. I knew it was going to be hot. And and the heat wasn't just it. It was. It smelled different. It felt different. It looked different. Everything. That's where the red hills comes in. The, the, the dirt there is red, you know, like in, in uh, uh, Georgia and Alabama, they got red soil, you know. This is everywhere. All the hills, well, not all of them, but the hills are red. And, and it's such a contrast with the, the jungle foliage, uh, which is where the green vines comes in. Uh, and the dried monkey meat we can get to another time. But um, just stepping out of that plane and into that world, when I wrote about that, that's where I went there again. I had to tell it first person. I didn't want to come back out of it while I was telling about it. And I would write for hours and hours and hours sometimes just because I didn't want to leave, if that makes any sense. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. You get so involved, you're living the story, and everything around you is just dissipated and yeah. you are in you are I was there I was there so yes I, there. I totally understand and the more I wrote not to interrupt but the, oh, mo- the more I wrote the more I remembered uh, that I had I had forgotten and, and I think that also came from the first person approach because um, <clears throat> by using the first person I was there and by being there I, I could remember what I saw. I could see it in my mind's eye. And that would remind me of things that I had sort of stuck away in the back of my mind someplace and really forgotten, you know. So it was, it, for me, it was the only way. I couldn't write it. And now a word from our sponsors. Before 1971, a young S. Sadie Burbank could only imagine a simple American life as a loving wife and mother. That was her goal when she first married in 1959 at the age of 18. But with the wild social revolution of the 1960s, Burbank's idea of a perfect life would quickly change as she left behind her family to begin a new existence of her own. Her journey would find her on a plane headed toward her new lover, Steve, who was halfway across the world, waiting her arrival in a small bush camp in the country of Liberia. Once there, Sadie is greeted with a fascinating, strange world and plunges herself into the exotic land of the bush. 
the less than six months later, Sadie would realize all was not as it seemed, and Steve was not the man she fell in love with. Burbank found herself desperately seeking escape from the camp and her lover as she raced back to Robertsfield Airport, literally running for her life. Based on an unbelievably true story by S. Sadie Burbank, Red Hills, Green Vines, and Dried Monkey Meat for Dinner is a manuscript of Burbank's adventurous and deadly experience during a time filled with sex, drugs, and murder. Now available in paperback and hardback. For more information, log into www.redhills.us. Are you looking for a new book, comic, or apparel from your favorite MythWorks or independent creators? Then you're in the right place. Introducing the all-new redesigned MythMart store. Now bigger, badder, better. Sign up and become a member and receive 10 to 50% off on selected items. Get the all-new Terry D. Schurer's Bloody Hell t-shirt or non-members can pick up one of our e-books for only $4.95. Or go into the past and relive the 90s with MythWorks Comics Classics for $3.99. The new MythMart. Bigger, badder, better. Visit MythMart at www.mythworks.com slash MythMart. Or find us on Facebook for extra savings. Do you own a business or have an item you want to sling? Do you want a chance to reach potential customers? Do you want to make some extra cash? Then here's your chance. For $50, you can have a one to two minute commercial featured on each of our shows for an entire month. With six shows a week, that's only $2.09 per podcast. Plus, for an extra 10 bucks, your item will be placed into MythMart. So sit back and relax as they handle all stages of transactions. Contact our ad department at info at Again, folks, you guys got to really sit down and read this. Um, like I said earlier, uh, Sadie would send me emails with the story, and, and I would set, and I would read, and I'd give her a call and give her my critique. Um, and it's one of those stories where I'm, I'm so engrossed. I, I remember I was sitting in my car. Um, I was taking college classes at the time, and I was sitting to read the story. And I got so caught up in the story. And when I finished reading that chapter, what well, wasn't even a chapter, it was just a piece of the story. Um, I looked at my watch and I had realized that I was like 30 minutes late to my class. It, it really sucks you in. Um, and I can't say enough good stuff about it. It was just, like I said, when I heard the story originally verbally, I knew it needed to be done. Um, and I did twist some arms. And, and I, I got my way. <laughs> so, um, let's go in, because we do have time. Um, I, and I do, I, that was one of the things I wanted to tackle was the title. So you've already explained the Red Hills, the Green Vines. So where does the dried <laughs> monkey meat for dinner come into play? Well, it comes, actually comes from two different 
instances. There's a story that I tell in the book of when we first came to our camp in the bush. And the bush um, is like, oh, how do you describe the bush? Um, it's just way out in the bush. <laughs> it's out in the, away from all the cities, away from the towns, away from most villages, just out in the middle of the jungle. Only in this case, our camp that was built for us in the jungle actually had, on three sides was jungle and the fourth side was beach because we were right on the coast. Well, when we first came to that camp, the first night we were there, first day that we were there, <clears throat> Everybody wanted to make sure we were comfortable and happy. And uh, they had several huts built. We had a sleep hut. We had a work hut. We had a storage hut. We had a cook hut. Um, we even had a potty hut. We had the whole nine yards, each in its own little hut, kind of like different rooms in a house, only they were huts. Um, in the cook hut, it wasn't yet set up for my use, and all it was was a hut, four sides of an open space for a door but in the back of it toward the rear on the ground was a little sort of fire with some twigs together in a circle with a little curl of smoke coming up from them and on a rack wooden rack probably bamboo uh, sort of behind that fire um, sat something I don't know what it was it was something that they had been smoking over that curl of smoke. Now, are we talking like give it smoke flavor, or are we talking like... No, that was kind of the way they were cooking it. Oh. Sort of, I think. That's what they thought. Um, they being Joseph and Mimi. And um, nothing would do but that they would offer me, you know, we'd walked for three hours. It's a, it was a long way from Monrovia, which is the freeport of Monrovia is where we did our business and, and all of that, but when we got to camp, we had to take a two and a half hour truck ride, and we had to walk three hours, and it was a long trip. So we got there, and they figured, you're tired, you're hungry, have a bite, you know, like anybody would, right? <laughs> so Joseph, bless his heart, he brings me this piece of, I, I found out later it was fish, and uh, said, here, Missy, this is, you know, for you to eat, you know, and I... Uh, I couldn't get it close enough to my mouth to eat it because of the smell. And and I knew it was fish, and I'm really not a fish person anyhow. Uh, I didn't know it was fish, but I soon discovered that it was fish. So I had to quickly think because I didn't want to hurt his feelings. I didn't want to insult anybody, and I, but I, there was no way in hell I was putting that in my mouth. So I, uh, I told him that uh, I first I said, <clears throat> is this fish? Joseph and he said, yeah, well, "Yes, Miss Fish, nice fish, sweet. Their word for good. Anything that they eat that's good, they call it sweet. It's sweet." He said, and I said, "Uh huh." And I said, uh, "Has it been over there on that uh, rack over there cooking?" You know. And he goes, "Yes, Missy." I said, "I am so sorry. My God will not allow me to eat fish cooked in that manner." I had to do something. I had to not hurt his feelings, but and 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 I knew that the the people in that area were were very religious people. Um, 
Muslims, and and they're, they're very into dietary restrictions and religious uh, emphasis on that and so forth. So it was a natural. He quickly understood there was no apology needed. He understood, and everything went on just fine. He said, okay, Missy, no problem. You know, we'll get you a glass of water or whatever instead, and everything was fine. Well, that was part of the, the food thing. Well, then, uh, the uh, sort of, well, we had to go into Monrovia one time for, um, Steve was called there to do a project. He had to raise a barge, had gotten sunk in the Tur- what we called the Turd River. Read the book to find out why. Uh, <clears throat> anyhow, while he was um, doing that, I was on the bank talking with some of the local people there. Uh, talking meant I spoke English, they didn't, and we just nodded a lot and smiled a lot. And it worked. Uh, one of the ladies there was fanning flies off of these blackened, flattened things on a rack. Again, a rack over a little tendril of smoke. Um, and so I asked what it was. Well, it was monkeys. And if you looked at it right, you could see it kind of looked like a Rorschach, of Rorschach, whatever those tests are, of a monkey. You know, they had splayed them down the middle and then like that, right, out flat, sort of like monkey bats, you know. And and then just, I don't know what the hell they did to them to make them so flat. I, I, I don't know what they did to them, but they were, God only knows, but they were blacker than the night and 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 leathery and, and really not appetizing looking at all. And the nice lady wanted me to have some monkey meat. Take for dinner, she said. Take for dinner. I'm like, okay, thank you very much. I took this little piece, and this isn't in the book, actually, but I took this little piece, and I put it aside, and as soon as it was feasible, I got rid of it. But um, that's kind of where the dried monkey meat for dinner thing came in. They, those people, you got to understand, this is a this was a, a country in the in the depths of poverty. I mean, when this when this lady had a monkey to dry to eat, she was happy. Okay. <laughs> Anything that once lived that they could catch and kill, they would eat. It didn't matter what it was. There were, I don't think there was anything they would not eat if they could catch it and kill it. But if they if they found something dead, they wouldn't eat it because who knows how it died, you know, and they were smart enough not to do that. But anything else, if they could catch it and kill it, it was dinner. So that's kind of where the dried monkey meat for dinner part came. And also, there were bits and pieces in the book. Um, the the tribe leader and and other people as well. They they called you Missy. Um, where did they get Missy out of Sadie? Well, they didn't get Missy out of Sadie. They got Missy out of uh, when we when we uh, when we left. Monrovia, headed for the, the camp in the bush the first time. Uh, as I said, it took a couple hours by truck, pickup truck, and then we walked uh, as after, the truck went as far as the road did, and after that we had to walk the rest of the way. Well, the road ended in this little village called Dia, and the head man, they didn't call him chiefs or anything, they just called him head man, 
of the village of Dia was named Momokai. And Steve had already met him because, of course, Steve had gone back and forth to the, the camp in the bush many times, getting it prepared for our being there. But I had never met him. And Daniel, our driver, introduced me to Momokai. Uh, he started to say, this is Miss, uh, was, I guess he was going to say, this is Miss Burbank. But he got as far as this is Miss, and Momokai, with his limited grasp of English and his urgency to make me feel welcome, said, oh, Missy! And it just kind of stuck. And so this is Miss turned into Missy, and I was called Missy from then on by everyone. That's how everyone I met thereafter, uh, that's how I was introduced to them. This is Missy. And so that's who I was. I was even Steve called me Missy from time to time. Yeah. Um, also, one of the things that I wanted to uh, get into for the, the listener, um, as well as the readers of the book, um, if they read the book, they'll notice that you refer to yourself as Sam, not Sam. Um, and I, I wanted to back up to the initial name S. Sadie Burbank, which is. Samantha Sadie Burbank. So, initially, your first name is Sam. Or Samantha. Uh, Steve, that was more of a mouthful than he could handle, apparently. Uh, anyhow, he didn't like Samantha. So he called me Sam. A lot of people called me Sam. It, it's a, a, a nickname for Samantha. And, now we barely talked about Steve. I know we just mentioned his name here and there. Yeah. Um, now, let's go from the beginning. Who was he? Originally, he was my liberator. Um, I met him at a bar. I was out one night uh, while I was still married. Uh, I was not happily married. And I had gone to a local bar to have a drink or two and dance. I liked to dance. I loved to dance. God, dance all night long if I had the chance. And I met Steve there. Uh, I don't remember whether he was dancing or not, but uh, for reasons only posterity could answer, um, I went home with him that night. Um, he drove a Triumph 500 motorcycle. Never been on the back of a motorcycle before. The moon was out, kind of like it is tonight. And this was in uh, Escondido in the summertime. It was a balmy night. Uh, it was a thrilling ride for me. It was very exciting and romantic, and he was, <laughs> in, in retrospect, in retrospect, I kind of wonder what I saw in him, but at the time, I was very taken, very taken by him. Um, in the book, you'll find out what happened when he got me home. Uh, but um, he and I struck up a relationship that lasted uh, and became more and more entangled, as it were, until it came to the point where um, I decided I need to leave, leave, needed to leave my husband, and um, it was hard for me to do, and so I can't remember exactly how it happened, except that one afternoon he was there in our house telling my husband that he wanted me. <laughs> oh my God, I can't believe he actually did that, but he did, you know, and I want your wife, and and I, I really, I think part of me kind of hoped that my husband was going to say over my dead body, uh, but the son of a bitch didn't. He just said, well, it's her choice. You know, 
and that was just so the wrong answer. Uh, and so that's when I kind of knew that whatever he thought he felt for me, it wasn't enough for me. I needed I needed somebody that, that, that would have fought for me a little bit anyhow. And so we separated, and I went with Steve. And one thing led to another. We wound up living together, and then he got this job opportunity in Liberia and told them he would only go if I would go with him, could go with him, and I did. So that's kind of how that all came about. When I was listening and folks that actually are buying premium download, you're not going to hear the advertising. Uh, and in order to know what I'm talking about, uh, feel free to go and download the free versions. Here, what I'm going to talk about. Um, in the beginning of each podcast, we have a advertisement, and the very first ad is about radio buying driver. Uh, as the narrator was going through the spill, he said something about the social revelation of the 1960s. Revolution. Revolution. <laughs> That's okay. Uh, there was both. <laughs> revolution and revolution. Uh, how much did that actually come into play? I mean, with you know, that type of era. I mean, I know it was just in the 70s were beginning, you know, one year in the 70s, How did that really come into play the lifestyle that you were about to change? God, I'm not sure we've got time for me to answer that question fully and fairly, but a lot. More than you can even imagine. Um, up until that time, Okay, let me backtrack just a little. I was 18 years old when I got married. Now, now that seems terribly young. Uh, at the time, it was quite common for girls my age to marry right out of high school. Very rarely, in fact, did they consider themselves uh, material for the uh, marketplace or the business world or even that of college and so forth. And I had dabbled with a couple of courses in uh, junior college right after high school, but initially uh, my, my game plan was to get married, have a family, and be a wife and mother, because that's what young women did in those days. And in the 60s, a lot of ideas came out that, that hadn't before, that Thank God I was open-minded enough to listen to, either that or stoned enough to listen to. I'm not <laughs> sure which, or both. Um, but things like the ability to be independent and, and the right to be independent and the almost responsibility to be independent was something that wasn't suggested for women in those days, it was it was all new and, and exciting and different because it, it presented opportunities that women didn't think about. And I mean, yeah, there was a lot of other stuff went on in the 60s. Yes, there was sex, drugs, and rock and roll, and I was happily into most of that, practically all of it, in fact. Uh, and there was anti-war sentiment, and there and and I boycotted grapes my children in lines around the grocery store yelling, Viva Huelga! 
you know, we, we, we're not going to eat grapes because the, the migrant farm workers are starving to death picking those grapes so we can go to the grocery store and, and pretend like we give a shit. And, and, and a lot of times we didn't. But we learned to. We learned to care. We learned it was important. It was a hard time. It was a time of real change. A time when you had to be there almost to get it. But it was a time when you had to put aside all those things that you learned growing up. And you had to say, no, goddamn, you're going to be responsible for yourself. You're going to be responsible for your life. You're going to care enough about yourself to be the person you know you can be, that you think you want to be. Because it's okay to, not as it only okay to, but it's it's almost required. Life requires that you step up to the plate and be that person. Those were all ideas that, that didn't occur to me as an 18-year-old child right out of high school, the daughter of a preacher, and you know, on and on and on. And then we went to see Hare. Um... If you haven't seen Hair, and if you don't know, and I know there's a movie, I think there's a movie of it, and that may be the only way you can see it, uh, you should. You should. Hair, Hair was the aha moment in, in my um, becoming interested in what I could give to life and what I could take from life besides being a wife and a mother um, it was it was literally life changing for me and I, I could no longer live the way I had I could no longer think the way I had feel the way I had behave the way I had uh I began to express concern for um, people, real genuine concern that I hadn't even thought of before, and it, it changed everything for me. It changed how I did things, what I said, who I said it to, who I said it about. Everything was different. Everything was different for me. The really sad thing was that it didn't affect my husband that way. He... Uh, I don't know. You know, opportunities come when we're ready. I don't think he was ready. I, frankly, I don't think he ever got ready. Um, and it's not nice to speak ill of the dead, so I won't. I'll let that one lay there. But um, it was my time. It was time for me to make those changes in my life. Uh, I was approaching 30 years of age at that point, and I, I, I felt if I didn't do something then to, to fix things, I never would. And, and so I did. I started doing things to fix things. I um, hung out with hippies. I became a hippie. I, I uh, volunteered at a, a, a suicide prevention phone line. I uh, participated in um, exposure education weekends, which is what we called these things where we got wasps, white Anglo-Saxon Protestants together, and we scared the shit out of them and tried to get <laughs> them to realize that that they could do something different with their lives. Um, 
And I mean, when I say we scared the shit out of them, I'm not kidding. I can't remember if I told that story in the book or not about the Black Panthers. Um, <laughs> I hung out with a lot of, I actually wrote in on uh, one year when I voted, I wrote in, um, oh God, I can't even think of his name right now for president. Oh shit. Well, anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, <laughs> he was Black Panther. Um, but we, we, this group of hippies and these Black Panthers who were, who were all like associates together, I guess you could say, we conducted these things where these, I don't know where the hell these people came from, suburbia, you know, they would come to this, this church down in downtown San Diego and, um, we would, we would do things with them to, to smack them in the face, so to speak, uh, Exactly. Uh, we took them down into the scuzzy part of town, and and, we're, and we'd turn them loose with a cord, and we'd say, don't come back until you've done something you've never done before. It's, you know, stuff like that. And they'd go to places where you put in a quarter and you can watch a, a, a good sex show, you know, for 15 minutes until things got good, and then, of course, the quarter ran out and you right. put another quarter in. Stuff like that. Anything we could think of to, to get them to, to realize that there were people on the street down there who mattered and they were ignoring them. And it would never occur to them to even talk to those people or walk beside those people on the sidewalk because they were dirty and they didn't have a place to live and they, and they didn't act the way that these other people did and, and, you know, all of this kind of stuff. So we really went out of our way to help them learn that. And there were all kinds of people there. We had, we had what we called fuck flicks and, and we showed those on the walls of the, of the cathedral that we held our meetings in. There were nuns that came to these things. Oh yeah. And, uh, and, and the whole idea wasn't to show the fuck flicks. That wasn't what it was about. It was to, it was just, like I said, to kind of get them to realize that there was another world out there that, that it was okay to say fuck. <laughs> That's all right. It, it was okay. To, it was okay to say fuck. Fuck's a good word. Okay, it's like shit. You know, with George Carlin, one of my favorite things in the whole world used to be listening to him talk about the merits of the word word shit, because it's the only word that fits sometimes. And the same thing with fuck. It's the only word that fits. And sometimes you need to be able to say that, at least in your heart, if not out loud. And so we tried to get them to understand all these kinds of things. And one of the things that we did, <clears throat> we sat them in a circle on the floor, facing each other. And there were, oh my God, there must have been 45 or 50 people in that circle. Uh, we only did this once that I recall. Um, and we had them sitting cross-legged, not touching each other. And we told them, close your eyes. And... As they sat there in the darkened church with no lights, unbeknownst to them, about 40 Black Panthers came in and stood behind them in a circle. And on cue, they each took their rifles and went cha-ching. And no matter what time of the year it is, if it's, you know, back in the 60s or here in 2012, mm -hmm. that, that, that was I think we had to mop the floor. <laughs> yeah. But that, that's just an example, and it's an extreme one, of the kinds of things that we did. Well, these are things that I took time away from my family to do. Some of them I did with my family, my children, 
Uh, like I said, we boycotted grapes together and stuff like that. But there were other things that I couldn't take my children to do. Um, and so in that sense, I kind of neglected them a little bit. But it were, they were things that I felt they were important to do. Um, in doing all of that, of course, my husband and I grew further and further apart. Uh, he wasn't interested in any of the things I was interested in. He still wanted to cling to that image of me that he had created, uh, sort of a cross between Barbie and Emma, Irma Bombeck, I guess. I'm not real sure what his image of me exactly was, but he, I actually allowed him to buy my clothes for me, pick out my clothes for me, my Oh, Christ, even my underwear. I mean, he picked everything out for me, and I let him. It wasn't just him. I mean, I let that happen. And somewhere along the line, I finally got smart and said, This is stupid. This is stupid. Don't, you know, take responsibility for yourself. And, 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 and that's what the 60s taught me. That all the sex, drugs, and rock and roll and hair taught me. Just that one simple lesson. I've got to tell you a funny story that happened when, when a friend of mine and I were, I can't remember what the hell we were in L.A. for, we were driving around South Central, we got lost, and thirsty at the same time, and so we parked the car, and she and I got out, and we went in this bar, and I kind of realized it when I went in, but I wasn't paying attention. Went in and sat at the bar because, you know, it was a small enough place it was, you know, it was not going to be a waitress. And so we sat at the bar and this huge, very attractive, very strong black man came up to us from the other side of the bar with the rag in his hand and he kind of mopped the bar in front of us and he leaned over and very politely and very quietly said, if you leave now, no one and I realized we were in the very blackest part of town <laughs> the very blackest bar we could have been in there was nothing white in the room people or walls nothing was white so we said thank you very much we got up and we left and drove a little further out of town to another place where we were not going to insult anybody by showing up and occupying space in their world um, well, at this point, I, I want to say, say thank yous. Um, other than being my co-host, uh, S. Sadie Burbank is also a co-executive producer of the whole Jayzo Modcast show. Um, and I want to formally thank her for everything that she's done. Uh, we've done a lot of back and forth emails, conversations, kind of getting uh, what we want to talk about, uh, not only for tonight, but for future shows. Um, so thank you for that. You're welcome. Um, My pleasure. And I want to thank everybody for listening. Has it been an hour already? <laughs> so this is Dave Montoya. And this is Sadie Burbank. And remember, what happens in Burbank ends up on a podcast. <laughs> Have a good night, folks. All right, kids. That's it for this week. I hope you enjoyed our little flashback show. Um, come back next week, and hopefully my voice will be better, and I'll be feeling better. Um, as you can hear, just doing this little two-bit, little segment thing, uh, damn near killed my voice. 
So for this week, I am David K. Montoya, and you heard what we think, and now you know. See you next time, kids. Bye-bye. Not what we know, because we don't know shit. What we think. (laughs) (laughs) David K. Montoya, S.A. Burbank Podcast. Or S.A. Burbank, David K. Montoya Podcast. (laughs) The game plan, yeah. The, uh... The show. And see, I came up with more. Not what we know, because we don't know shit.